It astonishes me now to think how naive I was. I thought I had discovered something that certain other people, if they weren't afraid to give it a try, would find just as fantastic as I did. It was a dark and forbidden thing, yes, but so was sex. I really had no idea that I was jumping across a vast behavioral gulf. In fact, I couldn't see that I was doing anything wrong. I still can't, and I'm including what happened with Matt. Carol said I should have been put away, but I'm not bad-looking. So, if offering my body to dead men is a crime, I'd like to know who the victim is. Barbara Gowdy, we so seldom look on love. Hi, Barbara Gowdy. Hi, Jesse Gilmore. Welcome to the uh, Gilmore Podcast, Episode 2. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, I'm happy to be here. A quick introduction about you and your um, really startlingly... Uh, brilliant career. So Barbara Gowdy is the author of eight books, including Helpless, The Romantic, The White Bone, Mr. Sandman, We So Seldom Look on Love, and Falling Angels, all of which have been met with widespread international acclaim. A three-time finalist for the Governor General's Award, two-time finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, and the Commonwealth Writers Prize winner of the Marion Engel Award and the Trillium Book Prize. Gowdy has been long-listed for the Man Booker Prize. She has been called a miraculous writer by the Chicago Tribune, and in 2005, Harper's Magazine described her as a terrific literary realist who has refused to subscribe to worn-out techniques and storytelling methods. She was appointed a member of the Order of Canada, effective the 5th of October 2006, and won John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship in 2012. Born in Windsor, Ontario, she now lives in Toronto. When did you decide to stop writing? Uh, My last book came out in 2017, and I realized, you know, I was always on people's shortlist. I think it was, let's have a Barbara Gowdy type book, which is out there, maybe strange, um, but very, but I, I, I won very little. And I always thought I'm tired of hoping to win and I'm tired of competing with other writers, especially writers that I admire and especially younger writers and especially younger writers that haven't had a spotlight on them before. I didn't, I, I stopped wanting to compete. And, you know, the prizes are so um, pernicious, except for those who are shortlisted, but they're pernicious because everyone wants to be on a shortlist. Everybody wants to um, help out the publisher sell the book. You know, publishers refer to their writers as, as um, they, they, they talk about their stable of writers, and that's how I felt, like a horse in a race that I didn't want to be in. You know, and one side is me, a writer I like, one side a writer I don't admire so much, and we're suddenly running to a... a the end of the race and I, I, I stopped wanting that competition. I stopped wanting to travel and do um, all the promotion that is attendant uh, to putting the book out there. I just hated having my book out there. And um, I'd also had a cancer diagnosis just a year before, breast cancer. And uh, I had about 11 days before the true diagnosis came in where I thought, gee, I might not live. And is this, Am I happy? 
And I realized, you know, I'm not happy. Um, I got to start going back to music and seeing more of my friends and family and, um, and being less selfish. As you know, being a writer requires you to be selfish. You have to spend time. You have to tell people, leave me alone. I'm writing, um, figure out your own problems. I'm writing. <laughs> and, uh, I, I was getting older and I thought I, I, I'm not happy and I'll try to be somebody else now. I, it was easy to it was, uh, it's been seven years and I, I don't, I don't, from, I, in fact, I have sometimes nightmares where I'm really bad dreams where I'm, I, I realized I've written like 200,000 words more than I've ever written in a single book. And I've got to finish it. And I think, oh God, I've got to, I've got a contract. I've got to do this. And that's a nightmare for me. now. Did writing ever make you happy? Yes. Um, with my second Falling Angels, Second book, We So Seldom Look on Love, the stories, the white bone. I knew I was at a peak. I was in my stride. I knew I was. I knew it was good. I knew it was good even if no one else thought so, but I thought people would because by then I had publishers. And by then I had, after We So Seldom Look on Love and Falling Angels, I was being published in about 20, 24 countries. So I knew that it would get published and I probably had an audience and I was enjoying what I was writing. I was at peak of my own powers, um, whatever that peak is. And, um, yeah, I could make myself laugh with my own humor. And I worked hard. It, you know, sometimes I'd only get a couple of sentences or paragraph done in a day. But um, I knew when it was good, and that was very satisfying. And the actual act of it made you happy. Like, that was a joyful act. Yeah, I wasn't in pain then. I had, um, in 2000 and I started to get in chronic back pain from years of sitting on a piano bench and then at a desk and, um, you know, not, not exercising or anything. And I, I started to suffer chronic pain and had to write line on my back with my computer kind of hovering over me on a stand. And uh, this is when it became quite difficult. It was just physically painful. Um, but, you know, I, I kept going on thinking, you know, the next book, the next book, I feel still felt I had things to say. I still have things to say, but I don't right. feel so compelled to say them. The book um, we're going to talk about today is uh, We So Seldom Look on Love, which is a book of short stories, um, which I, I really enjoyed and I found um, profound and, and beautiful. And um, I want to talk about it. So um, I want to ask you first um, about the title story, We So Seldom Look on Love. Now, I've read some, some press about it before, but for listeners who haven't heard, this is a story about a, a young female necrophiliac who sleeps with the bodies of dead men. Um, very interesting because apparently only 5 to 7% of necrophiliacs are women. Can you, um, as much as you're comfortable with, uh, share your inspiration for that story and where it came from? Um, you know, I was thinking of that. I, I know that statistic too, but I've often wondered, you know, who's admitting to this? How do they know? Um, might be higher, might be lower. Um, but um, my inspiration was I, I read a story in... This book came out in 1992, and it was written between 89 and 92. And around 1990-91, I came across a magazine in a bookstore called Apocalypse Culture. I don't think it's still there. 
And there was an interview in it uh, um, with a, a necrophile or a necrophiliac named Karen Greenlee um, out in California. And um, she became infamous for, she worked at a, at a, um, she, she was an embalmer, um, learning how to be an embalmer at a funeral home. And um, she one day stole a hearse and was found lying beside the hearse in, in which a, a young dead man was lying. That was her type. And she was found lying beside him writing poems to him. So it wasn't just, and she'd had sex with him. There was blood all over him. And, and she, she admitted to it. There's blood all over both of them, I mean. And she, um, so she felt love for him. She was writing love poems. And I thought this, this is surely just sort of a warped kind of uh, lust. But then when I realized she believed she loved them, that was interesting to me. And so I didn't interview her or learn anything more about her. I just tried to imagine, and this is true with all the stories. Uh, by the way, every story in this book is based on something that actually happened or I heard about or I knew about. And, um, and I saw it as my job to take a deep dive into that extreme otherness, which is what these stories are about, and try and write from the point of view of the person who was afflicted or behaving in an odd way, and uh, try and write sympathetically. And so I decided that I would imagine that she feels something, um, a kind of energy um, as the body is disintegrating, and it excites her uh, to be at these extreme points of change. Um, that's where I went with this. A, a lot of necrophiles do start with animals, dissecting animals, and um, I had her doing that. Not out of cruelty, not to hurt them. Uh, that's a different kind well, of Well, she doesn't kill behavior. any animals. Um, she finds their corpses. No, yeah. she finds dead animals. She doesn't, and she doesn't kill them, yeah. the men either. She finds them in the funeral home. It makes me really think about, you know, when my parents died, do I really want them to go to funeral homes? Because I was researching what happens in a funeral home, and I I, I, you know, um, it's stories. It doesn't happen in every funeral home, obviously. But there is a helpless body, recently dead, uh, lying on a slab, being cut open. And um, the family isn't there to witness it. And um, it, it feels very <laughs> like the dead is vulnerable. Of course, the dead, is, the dead person isn't there, but it feels vulnerable. She feels that the dead person is is still there, kind of dying, the process of dying, and she wants to enter into that transformation by having sex. And actually, what she does with the body is what Karen Greenlee admitted to having done. Most men say, "How can a woman have sex with a dead guy?" Um, most men say this, and most women will say, "Oh, I can figure that yeah, out." Yeah, I figured it out pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> um, so I have some pointed questions about it. Um, when she's very young, mm -hmm. she starts to discover and then um, bury the animals of dead bodies after wrapping them in certain things, in tissue paper, in toilet paper, etc. And she starts to dance. And she does this dance, and it carries on into her pure necrophile uh, career, you could call it, where when she... Um, is about to make love to these corpses, she dances. And she eventually meets a man named Matt um, who falls instantly in love with her. And they obviously have a very, very complicated relationship. 
and I don't want to ruin the story, but for the sake of this podcast, I, I have to say what happened, which is eventually Matt, mm-hmm. out of his, I'd say, mental illness and deep longing for her, commits suicide so that she'll love him. And she does sleep with him after, but she doesn't dance before she sleeps with him. And I wanted to know if that meant anything. You know what I did, Jesse? I have, I end the story with him lying at her feet mm-hmm. and she kisses his mouth and there's blood coming out of his mouth. That doesn't mean that after that kiss, she doesn't carry on and dance and do everything else she used to do uh, with, with other dead men. I just ended it there for the reader to decide whether or not she would dance. Um, but he is different in that um, she knew him when he was alive. She had sex with him when she when he was alive, but it wasn't all that satisfying for her. And usually after having sex with him, she had to go to the, the morgue and find a recently dead body. Um, it, it, I, I know this sounds all very sensational, and it is, but my, my um, motivation was to unsensationalize it, make it about a behavior that had to do with, in her mind, honoring loving, participating in the experience of death, feeling kind of what she called the energy of his disintegration entering her, and that energy would would pump her up and make her feel alive. She would take kind of the life out of him during sex, um, but, but she would have sex with him that was um, tender and... Um, she herself said, I'm not bad looking, so these are young men and I'm young and pretty and um, if there's a victim here, I'd like to know who that is. Uh, in real in real life with Karen Greenlee, somebody's mother sued her for transgressing a dead body, by the way, which was legal at the time she did it. She was only, she was only arrested for stealing the hearse. What she did with the body wasn't a crime. And even the judge agreed and said, I don't see how, I don't, he said about the mother, I don't see how you suffered having this pretty long, young lady lying around, you know, hugging and kissing and having sex with your dead son. I don't see that that's put you in a lifelong trauma. And so the case was one on, on Karen Greenlee's behalf. And so I was trying to, I was trying to unsensationalize it and trying to be sympathetic. This was one of the harder stories to write, of course, because, uh, that's not me. I don't want to have sex with dead men. I mean, I, I, everybody in this book is not me, and and that was the that was the um, the challenge. It, 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 my partner last night, who's a writer, said to me, "You know, it's 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 about it's psychology. What you're what you're getting into here. It's a really psychologically heavy book. Like, why do people do what they do? Um, humans are so diverse and and so." Uh, strange sometimes, especially when you get to know them well or you get to know their secrets. And why are they doing this? And I always wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're doing this because, not that they're, I mean, there are monsters, but these, my characters aren't monsters. You know what, Barbara, Of I, as the reader of this story, I disagree with you on that. I, I'd say in every story, except we seldom, we so seldom look on love, there are huge, huge chunks of humanity that are portrayed. Um, the nameless necrophile, and we so seldom look on love, struck me as 
a sadist and a psychopath, not because of her um, proclivities to sleep with dead bodies, but because of her entertainment of Matt's advances. And she's obviously, from the way she writes and the way she writes about the disintegration of the dead, um, which when I do my intro, I am going to read, with your permission, clips from the book um, so they know what I'm talking about. Um, she seems to invite his his downfall and seem apathetic about it at the end. And that's what struck me as... Um, the only character in the book who lacked uh, empathy and and a connection to her own soul. What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, I see that more clearly now. I, I wrote this these stories, you know, what more than thirty years ago, and I'm not the person any longer who wrote those stories, and I, I haven't looked at them in thirty years. So reading them again. Um, I was a little like, whoa, my poor parents. <laughs> the today um, I, I was, I mean, man, I'm the age now that my mother must have been when she read them. And I, if she read them at all, but, uh, you know, they still talked to me. And we didn't talk about this book. Um, but I, I see what you're saying because she was so invested in transformation. And she ends the book by saying, I believe that all change, all process, all transformation is because life turns into death, because of that big transformation near the end. And so she was sort of hastening his transformation from a living, completely um, obsessed guy. He was very obsessed with the fact that she slept with dead guys and always wanted to have sex with her right afterwards and wanted her to describe it. And she kind of went along with it. She, she let him have his obsession, even though she knew it might lead to a suicide. Uh, she tried to stop it. Um, he was standing on a chair and, you know, he was going to hang himself. And um, she was telling him to get off the chair and uh, he kept saying, pull the chair out. And and then she has a kind of a blank moment where maybe she pulled it out and maybe she didn't. So she's hardly a saint. Uh, she was completely caught up in her own obsession and was therefore um, uh, sympathetic to his. But you see, for her, dead people weren't... Um, Dead people, their life, their life was over, but it wasn't a tragedy for her. So uh, she's she, in that way, is probably insane. But um, I'm not prepared right now to say she was completely insane, given that she had this propensity. We we have these longings and propensities that come from, you know, maybe genetic uh, warp, warpedness, warped genetic. Uh, um, genetics or come from how we were raised um, and come from our situation and our circumstances. I, I don't know. Um, but she was as sane as a person could be. She, and as we talk about, she didn't kill anyone. She didn't even kill him, even though he was asking her to. So she let it happen because transformation and change and going from living to dead was interesting to her. I don't think I, uh, I've read some stuff about the real, real Karen Greenlee since. And, you know, in this, today's climate, I might be taken to task for appropriating the voice of necrophiles. Uh, you don't get to do that. Only necrophiles can write about necrophiles. I don't think she's capable of writing about <laughs> from what I hear. What her, she's writing about what went on with her. So I, I think I gave her more uh, in, in internal 
um, logic and and uh, thought than she probably had. She probably was quite crazy. Um, and I wanted to kind of pull her away from that. I, I don't stand by this story being one of, of redemption or um, an expression of sympathy or empathy. Um, it just turned out to be what it is. It's hard for me to stand by it now. It's almost like defending myself back then, myself as a person. It's a, but it's, a, it's a beautiful story, I mean, regardless. I really enjoyed it. I just wanted to know your your thoughts on on her um, as a human being, because as I said, everyone else in this book, this book strikes me, uh, an overarching theme of it seems to be the war between the body and the soul. Um, the body, including the mind. So the body and the mind versus the soul. That's that's what I took away from reading. It is that. It's also very much about uh, what is the self and mm. what are the boundaries of the self. This this is very much what this book is about too. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a very difficult thing to know. And all the characters are trying to become their most embodied and uh, the self. And they're trying very hard to marry their longings and their soul, if they believe they have one, to their behavior or to what the world has uh, told them they are. And, and there's some freaks in this book, and I call them freaks um, purposely because at the time in the Barnum and Bailey days when they exhibited, they called themselves freaks. That's the term they... Uh, accepted and a lot of them, um, uh, um, they they didn't have to exhibit. There's the story Sylvie about a woman with two little legs coming out of uh, two four legs, two little ones coming out of her belly that also had a a womb, and and she could have hidden that deformity, so called, under the full skirts of the time, but she chose to exhibit. And the real one, and I changed the story somewhat, but even after she married a doctor who had money. And she had babies out of each vagina. And when you look at pictures of the family, it's the doctor who looks a little crazy, not Sylvie. Um, she she chose to exhibit herself, to show because back then, difference, uh, physical difference, so unlike now, physical difference was considered uh, by a large portion of the audience, as portion of the population, I should say, as some um, is interesting. Is something to be is interesting. Is something to be celebrated. I want to get back to Sylvie, but it brings me to um, ninety three million miles away, um, which is about uh, yeah. uh, okay. a woman, a married woman, who doesn't work. Her husband supports her, and she becomes uh, transfixed by this man across the street watching her through the window. And you give him a beautiful silhouette. He's got a white shirt and a green tie, which I just found just beautiful and perfect image for um, a watcher. Um, I wanted to ask you, where do you think, and, and, and sorry, eventually she starts performing sexual acts for him um, through the window and they don't speak until the end. And, and then things deteriorate the way fantasies do when, you come up close with them. But I wanted to ask you, where do you think exhibitionism comes from? Um, the desire to be looked at that is very, um, to be attended to, to be special. 
little kids often say, mommy, look at me, look at me. You know, they do something like they're on the swing or they're doing something, or they're bouncing a ball or they're dancing a little dance. Look at me, look at me. And uh, that was still in her uh, to be appreciated. Also, it turned her on um, once again. I mean, I started to get kind of uh, this time when this book came out, um, people realized it was me. I started to get a few stalkers who just figured on the phone and in real life that I was an exhibitionist. Yeah. I was an I was all these characters. Yeah, they were hitting on, on me. And um, this wasn't me. The whole point of these stories was none of these people are me. Um, but I think it's, it's, um, it's wanting to be acknowledged. I think the best thing we can do for people in the world is acknowledge who they are, who who they're presenting themselves as, uh, acknowledge that. And it's, it's a loving thing to do. And so by looking at her, he was giving her a sense of being lovely, being sexy, um, being desired without anything, without, ha without her having to uh, have sex with him and, and therefore um, uh, go against her wedding vows. She didn't, she didn't do that. She just, she just showed herself to him, and he was an appreciative watcher. The book is also about how important it is to look and listen and watch and observe. And, cause, because I believe at a deeper level, of course, that the more we... I, I'm an animal person and animal rights activist, in fact, and I say about animals, the more we look at them, the smarter they get. They're always that smart, of course. We just notice things. Nobody has ever studied an animal and said, you know, I've been looking at these bloody, you know, elephants for... 30 years and boy, they're stupid. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite happens. And I think with people too, um, the more we look at them, the more we attend to them, the more we see them, the more empathetic we're, we're about to be in it. And, and the more difficult it is for us to do them harm because we start to know them and um, we don't want to harm them. So I think all failure in the world really is failure of empathy and all failure of empathy is failure of imagination and failure of attending. And so she's, she, these, these are called concrete examples of some, um, and metaphoric examples mm -hmm. of, of, oh, that's my phone, which I have turned off, but it's still getting. That's okay. These, these, these stories are concrete examples of, of, of what I believe happens um, uh, metaphysically. And um, so, She's being attended to and showing herself not as a, you know, as a subtle person or as a wit, but she's showing the most vulnerable part of herself in a way and seeing if that can be attended to. She wants to do it and he wants to do it. Um, I think there are also exhibitionists in this world who... That's you think she'd do it again after the story? Because she, she sits there with her husband and she says to herself um, or to God or to whomever, let this be enough. Yeah. Do you think it's? Do you think that one act of of doing it was an exorcism of that desire, or do you think it will become something repetitive in her life? Yeah, good question. Because uh, you have to end a story somewhere, and I was trying to end most of them on a somewhat of an upbeat, um, so to say, given the story and the circumstances. But uh, I think uh, you probably should do it again. I mean, most people like to. Uh, say it's over, never again, and and then they're human, and the temptation arises, and uh, they do it again. 
it takes until, I must say, until you're my age where you don't feel the need to do things again uh, that yeah. caused pain, caused others pain. You, you don't feel the need to. In fact, mostly you just want to go out there in the world and, and serve and not cause pain and um, go to your grave gracefully because you start thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote the stories. I wasn't thinking about it. I, I, when you, you, I was at my best. I was at my most selfish, writing all the time, not really attending to my husband or my family or anyone else, just in, in my mind, in the world. And that's where I had to be. And I don't – there's times when I – told myself I should regret it or feel guilty, but then I wouldn't have written the stories in the, in the books I've written. So I can't um, have those regrets. And, and uh, to be an artist of any kind re requires a removal from the world and, um, and, and an acknowledgement of all your, one's own sins. I've been married several times and lived off and on with five different men. I always thought, this is the end. I'm going to stay with this guy. I'm not going to hurt him or leave him. And I always did. Do you think the appetite for sex comes from the soul or from the body? The appetite for, you know, sex, like doing it and getting it and everything is pretty well brainstem stuff. And it, it has a lot to do with the um, testosterone and... and um, female, all the, all the hormones are um, bouncing off the walls. And so it that's body. I think when you're older and those hormones are in uh, kind of fading away, actually women get more testosterone and men get more estrogen, which is why they start to look more like women and women grow, start to look more like men. I, I think that has a lot to do with the mind and memory, uh, what it was like, and even kindness. Um, if you really love somebody, you want them to feel the spark and the joy and the fun of feeling young, which you feel during sex. And so, um, and they want you to feel the same. So it becomes more mental, I think, as you're older. When you're young, it's just like, sometimes when I was young and having sex or something, it has, not, has to happen to most people. And so I thought, what was that? Like, what a, what a strange thing to want, to want that member inside you and, you know, but that's just not, it's, it's not logical. It's how the world uh, progresses. It's, it's what all species do one way or another, uh, unless they self-generate, but they're always hooking up <laughs> and making the next generation. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. Uh, the next story I want to talk about is the two-headed man. So... I'm going to let you explain this story and describe it. What's the two-headed man about? Well, it's, first of all, as I said, all these stories are based on something I heard about or actually read about or seemed to have happened. In this story, my brother-in-law, uh, who's a Chinese-Canadian, um, his family is from mainland China, he was brought up in Hong Kong, he claims to have heard about a, a two-headed man in mainland China who cut off his vestigial second head um, and was charged with murder rather than suicide. And because was it his head or was it another head? There are vestigial heads. There are vestigial parts of bodies. There's supernumerary nipples where people have like three nipples and, you know, extra fingers and toes. There was a guy who, and this was at a time when you couldn't do much about this sort of stuff. The surgery wasn't up to it. There, there's a guy in the turn of the last century 
in the early 1900s who had a whole leg growing out of his stomach. And the, they're Siamese or conjoined twins um, that are usually um, uh, separated, even though that means one may die. Uh, and by the way, Siamese twins who have lived, uh, there's two that I think are still alive that are work at a checkout. One does the bagging, one that works at the cash register. And uh, they're happy. They like each other. They figured out how to make it all work. There were two that joined at the head like this for a long, long time. And I think they're still together because if they're separated, they'll both die because they, there's brain that they can't, brain cells, neurons, um, parts of the brain that, they, that surgeons cannot deal with without um, great harm. So, you know, you come into this world with what you have, and unless people tell you differently, you make it work, and you don't realize that it's creepy or awful, or it's, it's others who want you to be normal. Um, anyway, uh, the two-headed man, uh, this two-headed man, I decided, and I don't know if this is true. I know that when there's sort of what's it called vestigial heads growing out, that's an that's an unrealized um, conjoined twin. That's the, the egg didn't separate properly, and only the head grew. Um, and usually, it's kind of a slobbering, blinking, almost brain dead um, appendage. Right. In this case, I decided well, because um, he was charged with murder, uh, it wasn't like a wart or something. It wasn't. Um, it was a, it, it must have been a thinking, um, uh, feeling head. And uh, so I decided to tell the point of view from, it, 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 that is first person, by the way, from each head. Each head has a say. And um, it, it comes to the point where the head that controls the body is so, so riled up and so pissed off and so tormented by this other foul speaking uh, angry head that he just saws it off and he thinks he has a right to yeah he thinks of it as his evil his evil self he's getting rid of it are these these characters are not chinese they're not um the race of all my characters isn't really an issue we're talked about but these are just two guys i think of them as two guys but one controls the body and one doesn't now imagine that imagine <laughs> imagine imagine you know, some of us, not me, but a lot of us have a hard time, hard enough time kind of spending time with the sibling. Imagine if there's one always there, kind of turned into your head, talking into your ear, eating, slobbering, saying mean, horrible things or whatever, even being nice, but always there. Um, how would you deal with that? That's That was the challenge of the story. It's, it's, um, it's up there with my favorite stories in the book. Um, I've got some real questions for you about it. I want to preface this by saying I don't like to use psychoanalytical terms when describing literature, A, because I don't know enough about it, and B, because I think it has the capacity to bleed literature of its mystery and and what, what makes reading and books magic. That being said... Um, the two heads attached to the same body. Um, Samuel, we could call in Jungian terms, the persona, the part of himself he deems acceptable to show the world. He reads the Bible, seeks true love, worships his mother, um, wants and feels deserving of cleanliness and joy. And Simon um, presents a Samuel shadow, says cruel things, has a promiscuous instinct, wants to drink and smoke, 
but there is also an instinct and truth for him. And he also speaks about death and seems accepting of death. Do you mind if we talk about the, the story in those terms? Do you agree with that? Yes, okay. I do. No, fine. Let's okay, do it. great. So Samuel eventually uh, saw Simon's head off. And, and there are these brief, after he does it in the hospital, these brief, subtle contemplations of this feeling of absence. And I wanted to know what you think of that, of somebody who rids themselves almost completely of their shadow self, of their base self, of their primitive self. Why would someone feel an absent, absence after that instead of just, you know, what one would think would be supreme joy and cleanliness and order in the universe? And profound relief. And profound relief, um, yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, I didn't think that was as interesting, <laughs> for one thing, just in, in fiction. And uh, secondly, I thought that if you grow up with something, you see, you see this is once again getting back to what medicine and society want to do to people who, you know, whose ears stick out. Let's not let them stick out. Let's get them beside their head, making everyone look uh, the same. And the reason they do it, it is a good reason. It's because otherwise they'll be tormented in the world um, for uh, their difference. And so the more alike we look, the easier life is. You know, like, you know, ants don't torment each other because I don't think they can tell each other from each other. Um, and so uh, I thought if you made it to adulthood, let's say they're, I don't give them their age, let's say they're 35, <clears throat> with uh, this second head there always tormenting you, it would be great relief that it's gone. But there'd also be um, silence, um, absence, um, and a need to reckon with your own shadow self. He had, not that he thought in those terms, but he had, he just knew what he felt, and I described what he felt and what he thought. But he he had um, made everything that he maybe secretly or even unconsciously, what he consciously didn't like about himself, he had um, poured into this mm -hmm. head. So everything's fault. That's your fault. And then he had to take responsibility for his 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 own mm. uh, feelings and he became dark himself he became he became he was always sanctimonious but then he became paranoid and um without the head to take on the second head to take on all the dark stuff the paranoia the anger the coarseness um the drinking the smoking he he had to uh contend in within himself with his own dark side, we all have it. Um, you know, the Christian religion says we're born with it, we can't get rid of it, it's always there. The best we can do is is uh, tame it. And if you try and get rid of it altogether, and I think this is true of people without second heads, therefore, if you try and get rid of it altogether, it's not gonna work. You're gonna subsume it and it's gonna come out somewhere, maybe in moments of rage, maybe in um, addictions, maybe in just a kind of fake uh, robotic personality that has no passion. Um, so that's, that's why it, I had him missing. It, head. it did remind me of, of drug addiction of that. Um, uh, the pushing down of those instincts, um, they start to irritate you. Um, then they annoy you. 
Um, and then you feel as if they're consuming you. And I'm talking about anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, all those things. And then you let them come back. And, you let them and, come back. And what, what drugs do is they, they decrease them for a moment and then they come back fivefold. And then you have to take more to decrease them and then they come back tenfold. Um, and that's why in this story, um, the head, um, the head is Simon. I get confused because I haven't read these in a long time. The, the head the is Simon. The shadow self is Simon. <laughs> it's Simon. He starts according in, 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 uh, Samuel's mind, Samuel's in the hospital, he thinks it's growing back. And the doctors are saying, no, this is healing well, this is great. And he thinks they're all cons in a conspiracy and they're lying to him and they're crazy because he can feel this suppuration and this growth. And he thinks they're coming back, it, the head is coming back and he's freaked out. And uh, I imagine in addiction, um, that's how it must feel like, oh, you know, I thought I was okay and now I'm craving and craving again. Everyone's trying to tell me, congratulations, you're doing fine in the world. You're, you've kicked it. I don't know if I've kicked it because I can feel it. And you can't, it's so hard to legislate what you feel. You can legislate what you do, but you, it's hard to legislate what you feel. It also reminded me of, of schizophrenics or people with severe bipolar who take these meds, who sand off the edges. And they always, in my experience, I counseled um drug addicts and people with mental health for a couple of years and they always end up going off their meds in my experience because they miss that feeling of vitality and darkness and i think for myself there's something about my dark side that when i was younger fed my optimism it seemed to shine and it seemed to serve as a kind of guide and it seemed to attract me to things in my life that would excite me, would give me pleasure, would give me the stuff that I felt life was made of. And so, you know, as I get older and I'm, I'm faced with having to, you know, shed a lot of those instincts because I want to get married and have a family and, you know, be a better guy. Um, I feel a loyalty to the dark side that pulls me back sometimes. And it's, it's as if it's a feeling as if I'm abandoning it, something that helped me immensely when I was young. And I think in the story, Simon um, or Samuel feels that, that he's abandoned Simon. There's, there's an edge of guilt there. Um, my next question is, Samuel has a couple of love affairs. Um, they're never fully acted upon. But both women, he meets two women. One is a dental hygienist at the beginning of the story. And one is the woman who falls in love with both him and Simon and wants to dedicate her life to them. Simon is cynical about both of these women. But... In both of the scenes where they're talking, the two heads to the women, the women have these impulses to speak to Simon, even though he's saying these really perverted, awful things, their, their faces seem to light up. And I wanted to know, as a woman, what you think of that and what that meant to you when you wrote it. Um, it made me laugh, sort of, because I have Simon... Um, the, the head, 
have a thing about Jill St. John, who was a beauty in the 60s. And uh, Yeah, I had to Google her. I had no idea who she yeah, was. She was this great beauty. Um, men I knew when I was younger loved Jill St. John. So he has a thing about Jill St. John. And, and women, there's one woman, the second woman looks like her. And even the first woman looks like her from the back. And he feels some regret that he was so coarse with her. But um, he knows he's never going to, he hasn't got a body. He's never going to get to do anything with them. So it's almost his defense. Like I am, I'm getting into your mind. I'm maybe even turning you on. I'm, I'm doing what I can with just a head. And, um, and he really wants oral sex with his woman because at least he has a mouth. And, um, and his brother is, is a virgin and very straight, straight as you can be. And, um, and, the, and the Christian carries around his Bible and reads it. Is, is horrified, and it's partly why he wants to kill his brother's head, his brother, for uh, running these women off. But um, I think what I read somewhere recently, and I was trying to figure out last night where that was, and I can't remember, but uh, maybe it was in a movie on TV, but I agreed with it, where somebody said to a man, a woman said to a man, don't uh, underestimate the amount of pity that is involved in a woman's love for a man. Women are maternal. They look after babies. I mean, I've never had kids, and I wanted them. I just couldn't have them. But I'm always, like, cuddling and kissing my cat. And and I said to Chris, who loves my cat, my, my partner, why don't you kiss her? And he said, I'm not driven to kiss her. I don't want to kiss her. And um, I kiss her because I feel, oh, she's like a baby. I know she isn't. And I feel like, oh, she's. I feel pity for her. She doesn't even know she's going to live more than 15 years. And she's stuck in my apartment. And... Um, and with men, um, women can get, women are very, most women are quite maternal. I mean, that's the reason why when you hear about a murder on TV, you don't think, oh, what a mass murder. You think, what women, women went crazy. It's always a guys with guns. And so women can feel very maternal about the men they love. And so these women feel pity for him. They know that, they, they know that he can't hurt them. They know that if you're a head without a body, you're going to be um, the very fact that he has any energy or spunk at all um, is, is probably interesting to them. And it, it's also, it's also loving the, the full bodies, the, the, the Samuel, because when you take up with somebody, you take up with the dark side of them too. And um, so it's sometimes I've been a stepmother and fortunately I've always had great stepkids, but, I know women who haven't, and the way to show love to your partner is to love their kids too, these little monsters sometimes. So he's the little monster. And uh, these women, it's, I think it's really in a woman's nature to try and love the monster that is attached to the man. In love. my experience dating, um, women seem to be drawn to my dark side. And then when I get into a long-term relationship with them, try to change it. Yeah, women want so to I was thinking with, with Simon and Samuel, if, if he just chilled out, married her, she might have been up for the decapitation <laughs> two years later, you know. <laughs> she might have done it <laughs> She might have done it herself. Um, it's, funny, it's funny calling it a decapitation right. because that's the whole of him. It's actually cutting him off at his feet, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, women make a project of men. That's another maternal thing. They make a project of their kids. Like they, these whining, shitting, vomiting little creatures that they just adore. And some I've heard men say, I, I'm not really interested in babies till they're about two and I can talk to them and they can deal with me. 
But women like love them right from the get-go. And um, then they make a project. You know, their, their project is to turn this into a good human being. And women are attracted to the dark side um, somehow or other. They find it sexy. Maybe it's an alpha male feeling they get from it, and they want to be with the alpha male. But then when they have him, they he becomes the project, and they want to save him. And they want later, especially if, like you, he's a writer, they want him to say at the reading, and I could never have been here were it not for Megan, who, you know, they want to be, they want to be the power behind the, the throne, the one who... They want to be the one who gets rid of the dark side, but they want to do it through, they don't really want to saw off, saw it off or stamp it out. They, they want the host body in this case to want to get rid of it. Um, but he does it so drastically and suddenly he just one day picks up a saw and does it um, that it feels like murder because this host head has a brain. A good working brain, too. I, I want to read a quote from it because I found it really, really lovely. This is um, Samuel talking about Simon. Uh, By the time we were teenagers, I was on to his games. And in any event, he was tired of playing them. Before then, however, I occasionally succumbed to his charms. He had a knack in those days of divining my thoughts and expressing them with a beautiful simplicity that moved me to tears. I can't get over that line. Um, there is something, that, some truth, and, and I'm, I, I, I don't feel intelligent enough to elaborate on it, but some truth that your dark side tells you when you're young Um and I don't know what it is. Do you have any idea what it is? I, I think I wrote that to um, remind myself and the writer that this, what, what again, what makes the self, the body, the soul, the brain. And I think what makes the self is the brain as, and the body certainly contributes to what the brain thinks of oneself. But what makes the self is the brain and, I, I, um, and the mind and uh, the soul. And so he, he is a human being because he has a head and a working mind and brain and perhaps a soul. And these were little glimpses of his soul when he was younger. Also, he could, he, I, I made it possible for him to read Samuel's mind, which when he wanted to be mean and devious was even worse if someone can read your mind. But occasionally he read his mind and he read stuff in his mind, which was in his brother's mind, which was good. And he just repeated it to him, maybe in those maybe in those little moments where he was feeling kind, or maybe in order in order to charm him right. and work him later. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, do you think Samuel will eventually suicide? Um, probably because he's he's so messed up by the end. He's 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 close to it by the end. But um, I was thinking that. Uh, um, what if Samuel had been the whole body one? Yeah, that was my next question. Um, well, smoker, drinker, you know, course one, going after women and saying awful things to him. And the head had been the sort of sanctimonious one who wanted Simon to read the Bible or open the Bible so he could read it and, and was in thought of himself as kindly and good and um, better than others. Uh, that 
that's a story. Um, it didn't occur to me till recently that I could have written that as a, the B side of this yeah. this story. Um, I think at the end, Simon is uh, Samuel is crazy enough and paranoid enough that, uh, and if he thinks the head is coming back, he's probably going to kill him. But I don't know. I let them. I let the. I let the story end, and then I let them go off into the ether. You know, they'll do what yeah. they do because yeah. they're not real. How do you think they could have? This is my last question about this story. Maybe. Um, how do you think they could have accepted one another and lived in unison? Do you think that could have been achieved through conversation? Yeah. 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 I think it was um, probably the upbringing. The mother. Um, their mother was you know, constantly telling Samuel to be good to his head. It was his cross to bear. The mother spoiled the head. Uh, and she's very much like the mother in Sylvie with the extra legs. The, the, the mother in Sylvie would tell Sylvie who had these extra legs that those legs were her cross to bear. And in fact, the mother preferred the legs to Sylvie. Actually, when I think about that now, it makes me laugh. I think that was me knowing that my mother preferred my younger sister to me. <laughs> and she preferred the legs and uh, gave him a name, called him Sue. And um, it, it's a matter of upbringing and then probably a deep, passionate intelligence in Simon because he was clever that had no outlet other than um, no outlet. Uh, it was almost as if by being coarse and upsetting Samuel, he was, he was creating a virtual body that could take Samuel on. And it's the only way he could live with himself. So... They, they, I don't see. This is the only second head that I know of that actually was is able, is you know maybe has a high Q over a fifty, probably has an IQ of over a hundred um, or one hundred twenty, whereas most of them would have an IQ or, or, or a brain function of you know ten. Um, so I could have made him anybody, depending on genetics and upbringing and. And passion, the passion that he felt and the anger he felt mm. for being who he was. Whenever I think about the idea of the soul, it always has very serious undertones to it. It's like the soul searches for the truth and the soul searches for true love and the soul, um, you know, searches for purity. Do you think the soul has a sense of humor? Um, yeah. What is the soul? The soul is the self that exists um, beyond our sense of self, perhaps, in our, in our experience. And it's something that, if you believe we have one, we bring into the world. Um, therefore, it has everything, every possibility. Um, I, I like to laugh, and I, would, I, I think the soul has a sense of humor, and I think that the universe even might have one. Because um, sometimes the way we think an absurd behavior is is just laughable because it's so odd. Uh, it's so different from what we expect. I I um I don't know. You know, separating the self from the soul is something I've given a lot of thought to. Because in my latest book, I write about a woman who enters the body of another woman and um, is contending with her own self and that woman's self. And I've asked myself, does the self or the soul exist in absence of all sensory experience? For instance, if you were in a concrete box, 
without anyone else to bounce off of, anyone else to talk to, and you were there forever, what would your sense of self be? Our sense of self comes from, I think, other people's reactions to us. Our soul, I suppose, is what exists regardless, and um, regardless of what we do, who we are, how people react to us. And if the world, at the very end of the mystery of the world and, and the universe, and it is a mystery, if there is any benevolence there that is wider than anything we can understand, I mean, it might be a benevolent act to end, end humans. Um, it might be a benevolent act for the rest of the uh, universe and all oh, living things, including viruses and single cells. Um, let's say there is some benevolence in the end. And one wants to believe that the soul is good. But... There is such evil, there is such evil that maybe in, in the most evil of people, there is just some tiny little spark still there that is re redeemable. I, I like to believe in redemption, um, but there's some people that are so evil and yeah. um, not because of their circumstances, they just seem to be born that way. Like uh, Paul Bernardo, for instance, uh, who's been in the news recently because he wants to get into, he's been put into minimum security um does he have a soul and is there any let's say he does let's say we all do is his whole soul black is it possible to have a thoroughly black soul no, i don't know jesse do you think you'll ever write again i hope not i have nightmares where i'm like uh i'm close to finishing a book and i think oh no i guess i better finish it and i've got a contract and uh, um, it's, these are real nightmares. Um, it, it requires too much of me. I do have lots of ideas and I give them out to other people. And, um, um, I still have that creative impulse. Of, um, but I, I'm so concerned with not just what I want to say and the story I want to tell. And they're often sort of big stories, but also the sentences, I've read your book, and I know that you're concerned with the sentences too. And um, it can take me a long time to write a sentence because a sentence gives you a um, an atmosphere. And I really want the atmosphere to be exactly as I envision it, to sound exactly right. And I can get caught up in words that I seem to have to use, but I don't want to use They're the wrong word. Now, we have over 325,000 words in the English language, more than anybody else does because we have so many it's a bastardized language, it comes from many sources, and we have a lot of adjectives and adverbs. I mean, the French only have about 80,000. And our vocabularies don't even include the scientific and medical terms. So we have so many words. And I will look um, at the source, and I knew John Updike did too. It was found on his desk after he died. And uh, I'm looking for a word. I'm looking for a word. And it doesn't exist. I keep looking and looking for it. It's not there. Where is this word? Where, there's this lacuna in the language of a word to describe exactly. But at the same time, I want it to be invisible. I don't want anyone to imagine that. I want everyone to imagine this came so easily to me. I want it to be clear and easy. But it's so hard. It is hard. And uh, I have to be there. My family's getting older. Um, for several members, not well. People dying. Um, and I also do think... With some exceptions, John Updike being one, um, and there are others, and I won't start to name them because I'll leave some out, but um, there are writers who should stop at about 65. 
but they're in the habit of getting up every morning and writing and their later work is not good. I, I think I peaked um, with The White Bone, the, the book told from the point of view of African elephants. It's, it's not a ch- children's story. Everyone thinks I read Babar, which I didn't. Um, I never read children's books. I've rarely read, read them. I went through them in a couple of weeks from the Biltmobile and then, and I didn't like children's music either. I, I went right to jazz and classical. It wasn't interesting to me because my father listened to that. And, um, and so I, um, what was the question? Am I going to write? No, no. And happily. That uh, sensation. Uh, I feel a once in a while where I get a sentence completely right. And it's like this subtle, gust of affirmation and I can feel it very very deeply do you get that from anything else in your life I'm getting it now from a return to music and not piano which is I studied for years but um, I'm singing and I'm singing at St. James Cathedral as a as a um, volunteer most of the um, singers are these really great professional musicians and I want to sing with them because I want to sing this beautiful music, Palestrina and Mozart and all, all sorts of lovely music and, and sometimes six part, four parts, six parts, even eight part harmony. And um, sometimes when I'm singing that, I'm holding my own and I'm reading it because reading music, um, if you don't learn to read to sing when you're very young, it's like, it's like trying to learn Swahili or Japanese when you're 40, you know, it's hard. And um Sometimes when I'm managing it and I can hear these lovely voices in my ear, a bass here, a tenor in this ear, and I get this um, wash of, of rapture that I never got from, from my own writing. I can get from other people's writing, but never my own. Because you know what you're up to, you know? Even now, I know I'm, I'm looking kind of okay on the screen because I got makeup on, low light. My bangs are covering the wrinkles in my forehead, <laughs> and I know what I'm up to. But when you read other people's stuff, you think, "Wow!" You know, when it's perfect, you think that's just so that's that's just so wonderful. So I, I can get it, and I can just get it from. I'm forcing myself. I'm with a, a guy who's um, is very. I don't live with him, but I see him. Uh, who Chris Dooney, who is a writer and a poet, and uh, who sees stuff in the world I just miss all the time. And can you describe it so beautifully? And sometimes, you know, when I'm pissed off with him because he doesn't want to live with me after 33 years. But then when we are walking, he'll see something to describe it. And I think, ah, that's why I'm with you. And I can get that feeling, you know, which is worth living for. Thank you, Jesse. You too. Bye.